Good to have your company. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Pastor Colin Winch. With his wife Melva, Colin spent 34 years in the South Pacific Islands as a nurse, pilot and church administrator. Along with Pastor Len Barnard, Colin began the first Seventh-day Adventist flying service to the remote villages of Papua New Guinea. Colin was the first chief flying instructor at the Avondale Flying School and later the chief pilot for the South Pacific Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He has a commercial pilot's licence. He is also the only missionary to have been the president of the church's three union missions in the South Pacific, Papua New Guinea, Central Pacific and Western Pacific. With more than 10,000 hours of flying, in some of the worst flying conditions in the world, Colin has many amazing stories to tell. So many, in fact, that my conversation with Colin will extend over two hours. The second hour will be broadcast next week. A book of Colin and Melva's mission stories was published in March 2014. The title is Winchy. It is written by Ross Goldstone. It's a great read. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Barry, for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation today and our first story. Colin, tell me the story of the Mercy flight from Santo and the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu, to Numea in New Caledonia in 1976. Barry, it was a sultry day. We left early in the morning from Honiara to Santo, to fly to Santo. And I had on board with me uh, Pastor Gordon Lee and uh, Ted Jones, who were officers of the Western Pacific Union Mission. We arrived at Santo, went through customs and immigration and health, and then we uh, went to the headquarters of the local mission and uh, they had uh, the executive committee there. And I was invited in. As the day passed, in the afternoon, a call came through to the mission office asking for me. And so the uh, secretary came in to the committee and asked if I could come out and take the call, which I did. It was the chief surgeon of the Catholic hospital in Santo, and he explained to me that they had a Tongan gentleman who had been badly injured on the main road in Santo. And uh, he wondered if I could do a flight from Santo through to Numia uh, in order to transfer this patient to better facilities. They felt that they couldn't handle the case. Uh, the background to the story, Barry, is that um, apparently a priest was driving in his jeep. He had taken down the awning on top of the jeep and uh, he was driving along the gravel main road in Santo and behind him was uh, this Tongan gentleman on a motorbike and uh, as the Tongan was trying to pass the jeep the priest not realizing he was there suddenly turned to the left and uh, the motorbike hit the jeep and uh, the Tongan man became airborne. Uh, he passed the jeep. As he went past the jeep, 
His uh, chest was caught in the windscreen, the edge of the windscreen, which ripped his chest open, and he kept going and landed on his nose. It took most of his nose off on the gravel, and uh, I understand he had a broken leg and a broken arm. So he's not in very good shape. He wasn't in good shape at all, and uh, the doctors felt that if they didn't move him then uh, to a better facility, that they would lose him. And so I said, yes, I'd be able to do that. So late in the afternoon, I went to the uh, airport and uh, lodged a flight plan for Numea and uh, checked the aircraft, took um, most of the seats out so we could lay the patient down on the uh, floor of the aircraft, set up a place to hang the drip on and... Uh, I was ready to go, but uh, it was going to take quite a while to prepare the patient for this flight, and the ambulance didn't arrive till around 9pm at night. When I asked for a weather, I was told that the intertropic convergence zone, which is a zone um, where the northwest trade winds meet the southeast trade winds and the it forms huge cumulonimbus clouds and on this night it was very active and I was warned about that when the ambulance arrived we put the patient in the aircraft had to pass him through the rear cargo door into the main uh, cabin of the aircraft we uh, applied the seat belts to keep him steady and uh, the nurse then asked that I that she be allowed to sit with the patient. I was planning for her to sit next to me in the co-pilot's seat. and uh, But she felt that she needed, and she did, she needed to be beside the patient. So I set up some other uh, seat belts for her and when she was settled, I got into my side of the aircraft, closed the doors, and then indicated to the sister, whose name was Angelique, and uh, that I was going to pray. She couldn't speak English very well, but she could understand the simple prayer. And I noticed that during my prayer, asking God to protect us, to bear us up, bring us safely through the storms, and bring us safely down again at Nemea, that I noticed that uh, she was crossing herself and had a, a beautiful smile on her face. She was so relieved that she was flying with a pilot who was a praying man. I started the engines, called up the tower and asked for a clearance to taxi, and he gave me a clearance to take off, but he warned me that the intertropic convergence zone was extremely active and that I was in for a rough flight. I thanked him and we took off. The air around Santa was beautifully smooth. It was lovely, just like cream. And the aircraft climbed without hardly a, a movement uh, because of turbulence. There was no turbulence there whatsoever. We flew out across 
our mission school. We could see the lights down below and then continued to climb. I wanted to get to a height that would be above the mountains in New Caledonia so that if the storm extended that far, at least I'd be clear of any obstructions. In the distance, we could see lightning playing in the clouds. We could hear thunder above the roar of the engines. So there was a, a, a significant storm uh, brewing in the ocean, over the ocean, uh, between uh, Santo and Numia. In just a short while, we suddenly hit the first cloud. And it was incredible, Barry. There was a, a, a strong updraft, and it just took us up at 5,000 feet a minute. That's a mile a minute. That's right. There are tremendous forces that are within cumulonimbus clouds, particularly when they are all heaped together, all stacked against each other. And I throttled back on the engines, put the nose down, but I couldn't overcome this violent updraft. And no sooner had we uh, gone up to about 11,000 feet, uh, we went into a, a quiet space and then there was the downdraft going down at 5,000 feet a minute. So I had to put the full power on the engines and try and resist it as much as I could. But uh, it, they're very strong forces. And the plane was rocking. It was as if some great giant had hold of its tail and was shaking it. Uh, the aircraft was vibrating from all the turbulence. Lightning was playing all around the cabin. In fact, uh, from the propellers and around the nose of the aircraft, we could see this eerie blue glow. And it's the first time I've seen St. Elmo's fire, which is a characteristic of inside storms. And uh, we continued to fly and being thrust up at a great rate and then thrust down because of these updrafts and downdrafts within these clouds. I uh, was apprehensive. If it wasn't such an urgent case, if this man hadn't needed to get to a hospital facility urgently, then I would have turned around and gotten out of it. But uh, because of the urgency of the case, we continued on. I was praying, asking the Lord to uh, help me, to give me the skill to hold my hands as we continued on. After I had prayed, I felt a presence was sitting in the empty co-pilot seat. I was too busy flying the instruments to have a look, but as it continued to as I continued to feel this presence, I took a quick look. Nothing was there. And yet without a doubt in my mind, there was a divine presence there and a, a wonderful peace came over me, recognizing that my God does care. He knew where I was and that he had sent a divine being to, to keep me uh, comforted. 
It was about that time, still battering this storm, that I noticed that my eyes were not seeing the instruments as well as before. I, uh, I wiped my eyes. Still, the instruments were becoming blurry. And I said, oh, no, Lord, not now, please. I need my sight. Please give me my sight. And then I looked down at my chart on my lap. And I noticed that uh, it was bleary. And I put my hand down just to run my finger along the track that we, ha we had put into that chart. And I noticed there was a great, um, it made quite a mark across the chart, my finger. It was blood, Barry. And this Tongan patient was aspirating fine sprays of blood every time he breathed out or he coughed. And it was filling the aircraft and the aircraft uh, venting system was uh, bringing it up the front where I was to uh, cover the instrument panels and everything was being covered by a fine spray of blood. I noticed that the sister's impeccably white uniform, beautiful white uniform that she had on when she got in the plane, was now besmirched with blood and, uh, and uh, she was in quite a mess. The patient was semi-conscious and he was uh, tossing around, trying to get out of the restraints we had on him. He tried several times to pull out the drip from uh, his arm and the little Catholic sister had a very busy time trying to look after her patient. She was absolutely marvellous. And then as soon as we had come into the cloud, so we popped out the other side into a beautiful clear night. We could look down ahead and see... Uh, the lights of the northeastern coast of New Caledonia. I could see the mountains in the mo moonlight. And so we continued our flight across the mountains and started our letdown into Tontuta. I turned around and asked uh, Sister Angelique, how is the patient? And she said in broken English, not, not very good must get to hospital quickly. And so I realised that I was uh, cleared to land at Tontuta, the big international port for Numia, some 50 miles out of town. It would take quite a long time to get the patient into the hospital. However, there was an airstrip in... Uh, the town of uh, Numea, the city, uh, called Magenta. I'd often flown in and out of it. And I asked the tower operator at uh, Tontuta if he would please give me a clearance to fly directly to Magenta so that we can get our patient to hospital, that he was failing fast and we needed to get there quickly. However, the... Uh, Operator on the tower said that will not be possible. You need to, clean, to clear customs 
immigration and health here at Tontuta before you proceed to Magenta. I advised him that the patient was in no fit state to have that delay and that I was requesting that he give me a clearance through to Magenta, which he eventually did, reluctantly. We flew to Magenta and we landed. The ambulance was already there that I had ordered and I taxied the aircraft up beside the ambulance, closed down the engines, got out, opened the cargo door, helped uh, Sister Angelique out and then the ambulance men came and we took the patient out through the cargo door and placed him in the ambulance. It was uh, then that Sister Angelique came to me and she said, Captain, God was with us tonight, was he not? And I said, yes, sister, he certainly was. She then got into the back of the ambulance, gave me a quick wave, the door was closed, and off she went to the hospital with her patient. I taxied the aircraft to where we could leave it overnight, and as I got out of the aircraft, I was standing on the port wing, and I looked at the mountains from over the mountains from where we had come, and I could see this huge storm and the lightning and the thunder, and it was heading for uh, Magenta. But the Lord had brought us through. And I just prayed a short prayer there while standing on the, the wing in the sultry heat of Numir's night. And I thank the Lord for his protection. I remembered the divine presence that I felt. And I thanked my dear Heavenly Father for the angel that flew with us that night. And then I remembered Sister Angelique. And I closed my prayer with, make that two angels, Lord. Thank you. Pretty amazing story. I mean, worst possible flying conditions at night time, over the ocean, through this massive bank of cumulonimbus clouds, with a sick patient who's aspirating blood into, <laughs> into your cabin. Um, that would be one of the highlights of your career, I'd imagine. Um, yes, it, uh, the memories are still very vivid. I, as I listen to your story, I just have this very vivid image of you approaching those clouds with that lightning ahead of you in this small aircraft. Um, under normal circumstances, that would have been foolhardy, wouldn't mm, it? Indeed. Mm. There was no way of getting around the storm either, Barry, because the intertropic convergence zone extends for hundreds and hundreds of miles and we couldn't get over it. It would be unwise to go underneath because they have water spouts that they fall. So it was a pretty dangerous operation. Indeed. Tell me about the time the, th the throttle cable broke on approach to Kainantu in the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea. That one uh, fills me with awe and the realisation that uh, my dear Heavenly Father does really care for me. 
Two days before the particular incident took place, we were going to fly into the Kukukuka Mountain area south of the town of Kainantu to do airdrops of clothing bag clothing uh, to the villages there. We found, because there's no roads, we found that this was probably the only way we could uh, get uh, the bags to them. We had advised them on a previous visit that I would be coming in the mission aircraft and that if they heard the engine oscillate, vroom, 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 that they should uh, get inside their houses because when we dropped those bags, they're about 60 or 70 pounds in weight and they really pack a wallop and it would kill somebody if they uh, tried to catch it. Or So they had that message. I had prepared the aircraft, taken the door off. We found it was much better to remove the right-hand door. It was easier to deliver the bags that way. But the person who was to be my drop master had not turned up. I think it was probably nervousness. And so I went up and uh, asked my gardener who'd been pestering me for a fly in an aeroplane, never flown, if he would like to come and help me. He was uh, delighted until he saw the door of the aircraft in the back of the aeroplane. He, uh, as soon as we stopped near the aircraft, he started to take off up, up back to the mission. And I called out to him, however, I need you. I really need you. I've got no one to help me. Please come. And so he came back and I placed him in the uh, ventilated seat, the air-conditioned seat, <laughs> the one with no door. And uh, he was quite apprehensive. I let him practice how he was to collect the bag from behind him, check the name on the bag, put it on the door sill. When I said, when I called out, shove him, push it, then he was just to overbalance it, just push it out the door, and that was all he had to do. So he practiced. We practiced pushing bags out, and he was obviously... Uh, Okay, with what to do. I made sure he was well and truly strapped in. It'd be embarrassing to lose one of your passengers in an operation like this. I got into the other side and we had a word of prayer. Lord, whoever and I are about to take off to do this airdrop in the Kukukuka Mountains, it's rugged country, Lord, as you know. Please bear us up. Bring us safely through to the completion of this drop. And then, Lord, bring us safely back again. Amen. I started the engines and we taxied. As we started to taxi and I opened the throttle, the wash from the propeller started to come in woof, 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 through the open door and however leant over onto me and I had to say no 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 you must sit up you can't can't stop me from flying properly and so he said sorry sorry and uh, he, he sat there 
and we taxied down to the end of the runway, gave a call to lay flight service, advised them what we were doing, and took off. As the engine roared into life and the plane started to move down the strip, the, the wash and the noise coming through that open door is quite deafening. And it's like a, a, a um, cyclone coming through. And he tended to lean on me, but I had to give my elbow into his uh, side of his chest and he straightened up again. He was clearly nervous. He was very nervous. And uh, we took off and our first turn was to the right, however side. And as the wing went down, he was amazed that he could see so much and he could see the Highlands Highway going along the edge of the strip. And then he gave a terrific yell. I could hear it above the noise of the wind and uh, the noise of the engine. And I immediately looked quickly to see if he was all right. But he was, had his hand outside and it was being blown back against the back of the doorway. And he was trying to wave to some friends he saw driving along in a Land Rover along the Highlands Highway. He recognised the, the car, it was from his village, and he recognised the people. And he was calling out to them, look at me, you people, look at me, I'm flying. From then on, he was relaxed. And as we climbed over 10,000 feet to reach the Marawaka Gap, I noticed this, this son of the jungle, this lad that was only about 16 years old, playing with the wind with his hand. He found that if he could just twist his hand a little bit, it would go up high. And if he turned it the other way, down the wind would push his hand down. And he was just fascinated with playing with the wind as we climbed. So he was learning some principles of flight. Indeed he was. The action of a wind, of a wing. We crossed over the Marawaka Gap and then we let down into the Marawaka Valley. Barry, it's a, it's a rugged place. One of the reasons however, had been reticent in coming was this place where we were was next to the, his, his area and they were traditional enemies. And he was frightened that if I landed somewhere down there, or if we had a crash, that uh, he would be eaten. And so he had legitimate fears of coming on this flight. We passed over the first village where we were to drop, and I opened and closed the throttle. Boom, boom. And uh, we could see all the people racing out of their houses rather than in them, looking up at the plane, and we could see the teacher down there telling them to get back in, get back in the house. As we came round, we came round on downwind leg and I checked that uh, everybody was clear of the drop site in, the, in between the houses. We then came onto base, checked again. I closed the throttle, put all the flaps down to make the approach as slow as possible. Told, however, to get the first bag ready, which he did and held it there. And then when I knew it was the right place, I said, shove him, push it, 
And out it went. And he did a marvellous job. We got it right in the centre. We had 12 villages that we were visiting on this occasion. 12 drops. And Oever did a wonderful job for me. In fact, he became my best airdrop master. And uh, it was a privilege to fly with him. After we'd finished those drops, we headed back for Kainantu and landed. Two days later, I picked up Mr. Eddie Peets, the Secretary Treasurer of the Union, of the mission down there, and uh, he came with me. He wanted to go to Hagen, where I was headed, but we had to go via uh, Usurumpia, which was a 16% sloped airstrip, and it was right in the middle of Kukukuka country, and Eddie was interested in seeing this. He hadn't seen these places. And so we flew in there. We picked up uh, a volunteer missionary and his wife and flew back to Kainantu. As I uh, flew over my home, as I always did to let my wife know that I was home and to come down and pick us up at the airstrip, I opened and closed the throttle. Vroom, vroom, vroom. I could see it come out the back door and wave. And we completed our circuit and we were lined up to land on the strip. And I noticed that we were overshooting just a little. Eddie was helping me with the flying because he had uh, he would get airsick very quickly unless he was doing something. And so I had him flying the aircraft and he and I were together on it, landing the aircraft. But I was overshooting ever so slightly and so I held onto the throttle and just pulled it back ever so lightly and it came out in my hand. The cable had broken. But we had the airstrip there right in front of us and so we uh, landed but I had to close the engine down and we had to push the aircraft off the airstrip and back into the parking bay. There was no power available. That cable had just broken and uh, I couldn't get any extra power apart from idle. And as I was sitting in the aircraft just clean, cleaning up things, I, I thought back to the airdrop of two days ago. I thought of a little village down the bottom end of the Marawaka Valley. It has a lovely waterfall coming over a limestone cliff. And to do the drop there, we had to approach that waterfall, drop the bags in the village, and at the last minute, turn to the right away from the waterfall. And I thought, what if the throttle cable had broken just then? Or anywhere in the fearsome Kukukuka Mountains? I just offered a, a brief prayer to my loving Heavenly Father and thanked him because that throttle cable held until we were safely home. And that's the way my God is. He does care. Hmm. 
certainly not a coincidence, is it? No. no someone's looking after you. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, Colin will relate more stories from his time as a mission pilot in the South Pacific. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you are listening to Life Learnings. My guest is Pastor Colin Winch. Colin has been relating stories from his time as a mission pilot in the South Pacific. We are going to hear some more stories in the remainder of the program. Colin... Normally a pilot trusts his instruments, his or her instruments. There was an occasion on a flight to Nauru in 1970 when you chose to disregard your instruments. Tell me why. This flight, uh, Barry, was our first flight from Honiara to um, Nauru. I hadn't been there before. It was about a four, four and a half hour flight and I had arranged for fuel to be dumped at Nauru for us to refuel because we were on our way to Kiribati, the old Gilbert Islands after Nauru. I had on board with me again Pastor Gordon Lee and he loved to sit up the front with me and uh, he was quite adept at flying an aeroplane. He uh, had a real interest in it. We had uh, Ted Jones again too. And uh, we took off on a beautiful morning. No clouds. And climbed up to our cruising height. I set the aircraft up on uh, automatic pilot and uh, leaned the mixture to give us um, maximum distance for the fuel we had. And we settled down to doing a bit of talking as I looked out the front, checking that there was no other aircraft in the area. I tuned in the non-directional beacon with my radio compass to Honiara's a beacon, it's called an NDB. And I tracked out from Honiara on the Honiara beacon. After about two hours, the signal from the beacon was failing. And so I switched on to Nauru that had a very strong uh, beacon. And my 
ADFs, automatic direction finders, and the aircraft locked straight onto it immediately. We had two of these uh, radio compasses in the aircraft and it was indicating to us that uh, Nauru was dead ahead. About another 30 minutes, we um, noticed that the needle of the radio compasses was starting to move to the right, indicating that uh, somehow we had slipped to the left and we needed to come back onto track. But I, I thought there must be something wrong because uh, I was sure that Nauru was dead ahead. It had been when we were tracking on the uh, Honiara beacon and there was no reason... There appeared to be no wind. There were no clouds. It was a beautiful day. There was no reason why we should be off track. However, Gordon tapped me on the shoulder because he was watching this instrument. He knew what it meant. And uh, he pointed to the, in the ADF and said, Cole, it's... Uh, it's Nauru is going to the right of us. And I said, I don't think that's right. I think there's something wrong with uh, the instrument. And he said, but can two be wrong? Two instruments? They're both doing it. And he was becoming a little uneasy. There's a lot of water out there. No islands close to. I said, look, just relax. It'll come good in a little while. However, the needles kept going to the to our starboard side and uh, after about another half hour, it was indicating that Nauru was passing us on the right-hand side. We couldn't see anything, but Nauru's a very tiny island. There was no cloud on top of it, which often happens out in the Pacific. Little islands will have will help to form clouds. And that's another way of picking up when you're flying in exceptionally good weather. And you can pick up where the island is. But there was nothing there. I said it'll be okay. But I myself was feeling a little <laughs> little uneasy. I hadn't been up that way before and as Barry you said Pilots are taught to believe their instruments. <laughs> I, I was tempted to just go and have a look, but we had to watch our fuel. This was a long flight and uh, we needed to, to conserve fuel as much as possible. And I couldn't see how Nauru would not be straight ahead. When the last... Uh, site or the last bearing that we took, it was right ahead of us. So we flew on. I could see the way Gordon was moving uneasily in his seat that he was thinking that we're going to go, have to go and ditch. We had a dinghy on board, enough for all of us, inflatable dinghy, and enough water and uh, rations. So we had the supply for a, a little bit of time in the briny. But um, we did not want, I did not want to risk 
turning to the right. A little later, the needles were pointing on the right-hand side but back behind us. And, Lord. I can imagine the tension that's in the <laughs> cockpit at this stage. Well, uh, Ted Jones has got wind of what we were talking about and he was leaning forward and asked me to explain the uh, radio compass needles and I said, well, uh, Ted, normally the comp the the compass needle will point to the radio beacon that you're heading for. Well, he said, look at it. It's, it's behind us. Uh, I said, I, I don't think the island is. There's something wrong with these uh, radio compasses. As we came closer to Nauru, in the distance I could see this tiny cloud, little puffy cloud, and I said to Gordon and Ted, I said, I'll bet you my bottom dollar, Nauru was under that. But we couldn't see any island. It was the, uh, the hills in Nauru, well, you couldn't call them hills. They're not very high at all. 20 minutes out from Nauru, I gave uh, the controller a call. And uh, he came back and he said, oh, I could hear him sort of gasp. He said, you're coming to Nauru, aren't you? I said, that's right, sir. He said, oh, we better turn the beacons back on. And I said, why, the beacon's off. He said, yeah, look, I'm sorry. And he apologised profusely. We had forgotten you were coming. And uh, so he went down, turned the, uh, the... NDB back on, and immediately both needles came around, pointed straight to Nauru. Nauru was indeed straight ahead. Thank you, Lord, I said, said a very nervous pilot. And we landed. And the tower operator came out to see us, to apologise profusely. He did know that we were coming but someone had turned the beacon off, as they did to conserve power, because it was all on diesel engine uh, system to uh, g generate the power, generators. And uh, he was very apologetic. However, we did find later on, when an engineer checked the ADFs, that they were all, both working off one sense antenna. And they should have a separate sense antenna for each one. So really they weren't working that well. But nevertheless, that was the reason. And we landed and refueled and took our flight through to Kiribati, Tarawa, the famous wartime place. We were going there for a visit to visit uh, God's people there. You were relieved, I'd imagine, when you got to, uh, to Nauru. On that occasion, very relieved, uh, Barry. The fact that I hadn't been there before—not that there was anything to navigate by—it was—it's just salt water. But uh, yes, I couldn't make out why those needles were doing what they were doing. But the explanation after landing was uh, made it quite clear. Was your experience as a pilot a, a factor in all of this? And you getting there safely, I imagine that would have been a pretty distressing thing for a, a less experienced pilot than yourself. 
I guess so. It helped me make the decision to keep on the original track. Um, the winds in the forecast were not uh, strong. Uh, the day was clear. But if I'd gone chasing those needles, we probably wouldn't have made it to Nauru or because we were past our point of no return when this occurred and uh, we wouldn't have been able to make Honiara. You have a reputation for being safety conscious. Tell me about the time you failed to double check a petrol cap and the possible consequences of this omission. I'd be uh, happy to delete this story, but <laughs> it's true in training uh, our pilots as chief pilot for the for the church in the Pacific, I had told them that the pre-takeoff inspection of the aircraft was vitally important. I advised them not to allow anyone to distract you when you're doing the check in case you miss something. If, however, you need to break off the check in the middle of it, then note where you are stopping your check and come back to that point and then continue it. So I'd been hammering this home to my pilots I'd done most of the check, actually. I'd checked uh, all the instruments and all the controls inside the cabin. I had then uh, followed the regular pattern that we were trained to do along the back of the left wing around the tip, check for any damage, along the leading edge of the wing, checking the caps on top of the wing for the fuel tanks. And on this aircraft, we had three tanks on each side. And so I checked those and checked the engines, the nose of the aircraft back to the, the other engine, and then started to move along the leading edge of the starboard or right wing. I checked two of the tanks when the refueler came to me. He said, Cole, I need you to come over here and uh, sign this uh, document for the fuel. So I remembered where I was and uh, went over, signed the document, and then I was asked to come in and complete the clearance of customs, immigration, and uh, health, so I did that, checked my passengers through and brought them out to the aircraft, then went back, at least I thought I went back, but I ended up going to the wingtip. I convinced myself that that's where I left off. And there was one tank, the tip tank, carries 20 gallons. The cap looked to be down. Usually the refuelers do put all the caps down and lock them. But I missed that tip tank, Barry. I completed the check. The uh, 
back of the wing, the flaps, the gear crawled around underneath and looked at the landing gear, down to the tail, round the tail, and back up to the cabin. I'd finished. I loaded my passengers, closed the doors, had a word of prayer, as we always do, called the tower and requested a clearance to taxi that I was bound for Honiara in the Solomon Islands. Please give me a taxi clearance, which he did. We taxied out, received a clearance to take off and took off to the north. Beautiful day. Climbed up to uh, 9,000 feet to clear the mountains in, on the island of Espiritu Santo and headed for Honiara direct. It was a fairly boring flight. I had with me uh, the head of our education work in the Pacific, Max Miller, and he was sitting in the right-hand seat. There was just the two of us on board. We passed our point of no return. And it was like a, a tap on the shoulder. But no one else was in the aircraft, and Max certainly didn't do it. And I looked to the right, and here I could see, and hadn't noticed it before, a plume of fuel venting out of the uh, tip tank. Oh, no. How could that be? I checked all the and then I couldn't remember checking the tip tank. I said, oh, Lord. So immediately, I put both engines on the venting tank, on the outboard tank, which was connected to the tip tank. And the, the fuel came from the tip tank into the outboard tank and was used by the engines. Because I wanted to stop that venting. And I couldn't sort of open the door, climb over the cabin and walk out, even if I did have it on an automatic pilot. Um, and so I worked out how much fuel I thought was left, did a fairly accurate calculation, as it turned out, and um, burned that fuel away. And gradually we could see the fuel venting uh, less and less. When I thought it was about half an hour before that uh, those tanks would run out, I put the left-hand engine back onto its left side tank and then waited to see when the tank was fully empty. Now, I could have uh, feathered the propeller on that side, but we'd come a long way and there'd been no fire, so I assumed that uh, what I was doing was correct, and I believe it was. And I waited, and when the fuel pressure gauge started to drop back, it meant that the fuel was almost out. And so I changed that engine, the right-hand engine, back onto the inboard tank, and we flew to Honiara with no more uh, trouble. 
Barry, I'd made a big mistake. Needed to listen to my own admonitions to my pilots. And it could have been quite serious. Tom, would you like to close our program today with a prayer? Surely. Dear loving Father, we are told in your word that the eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. We thank you, Lord, for your bountiful love which you share with us, that you are our refuge and always underneath us are your protecting and everlasting arms. We ask for your special blessing on our listeners and the staff here at 3ABN. May all of us sense your divine presence constantly with us, drawing us closer to you. And we thank you, Lord, and ask all these mercies in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Colin, thank you. I look forward to our next conversation. Remember to tune in again next time as I continue my conversation with Pastor Colin Winch. Bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.
That was Lily Deal playing Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. 